I'm Mike Asnold, and welcome to the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge's AC23 Plus Artist Legacy Series podcast. This is a series where we talk to artists who are doing amazing things in the areas of the arts, including performance, education, production, as well as arts advocacy. We record this series in the Virginia and John Nolan Black Box Studio, as well as in the Jan and Bill Grimes Recording Studio here at the Cary Siraj Community Arts Center. Be sure to visit artsbr.org for more information on all the great things we are doing here at the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge. Hope you enjoyed the podcast series, and thanks for tuning in.
All right, all right. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Doug Stone, my good friend Doug Stone. Hi, Mike. Pleasure to have you here, Doug. It's great to be here. It's always great to be with you. Likewise. Um, I've known Doug, well, how long now? Five years I've been here. Are you serious? Yeah. Five years. And I think, am I right in thinking that we first met at McKinley High? Yeah, I think so. Well, listeners, um, uh, a very special guest today, Doug Stone, who is, uh, you're originally from Illinois. Peoria, Illinois. And so you've been down here, what, is that five years now? Yeah, now okay. I'm going into my sixth year at LSU. So, and what is your official title over there? Well, let's see, what's the date? In five or maybe seven days, I will officially be associate professor of jazz studies at LSU. <laughs> Making my way through academia. Well, wonderful. Uh, we need, uh, academia needs more people like Doug Stone. <laughs> With all seriousness. Um, I think it's wonderful that you're down here. I, uh, when I found out you had gotten the job and your name had been mentioned, I was like, well, I can't wait to meet this guy because I know he's, I'm sure he's going to be killing. And absolutely, that was true. Uh, so in that time, these past five years, we've we've had a chance to do different things together. I think as uh, teaching, right, um, as well as playing gigs, yeah. and um, I I have to say that uh, you're one of the people who I've really appreciated um, in all the help you've given me to kind of become a part of the scene in this area mm -hmm. and. Uh, I have had the opportunity to move around a little bit in my life and try to kind of make, you know, make things happen in my professional career in different places. And uh, so, you know, I started out in central Illinois as a high school kid, and there was a very good, you know, music, nurturing musical climate there for mm -hmm. young people. I'm not the only person who actually came out of my town who's you know successful and making a living in the music world um and then i after i finished my undergrad i moved to chicago and that was kind of a big adjustment to try to figure out as a fairly young person how to make things happen there and you have your connections from school but you're always trying to meet new people and and make your way now how old were you when you moved to chicago uh I would have been 22, 23. Yeah. Um, and just as, you know, I, I, the, my, my life there was going pretty well, but I decided I, it was time to get a master's degree. So then, you know, kind of a, a third time moving into a new place, and I moved to Rochester, New York, to work on a master's degree there. And at, the, at the famous Eastman at School, the of Eastman Music. School of Music. Yeah. And, you know... As a student, as a professional there, you have to kind of make your way in. you got to uh, meet people and play. And so by the time I got the job here at LSU, I, uh, I would say that one of the, th the kind of one of the challenges or one of the things that you can kind of be concerned about when you make a move like that is, am I going to be able to do this again? Am I going to be able to mm -hmm. fit into a new musical environment and, and culture? And uh, so within the first uh, semester there that I was here in 2018, you know, I was trying to reach out to people in town. And so 
I think someone had maybe recommended you in terms of the teaching that you were doing. And, um, I mean, just after that first meeting, you kind of let me know about the Geno's uh, thing on Thursday nights once right. a month. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was really just so amazing to have folks like you and Bobby Campo and many others who um, have helped me to kind of get established and comfortable musically in this right. area. Right. Um, and there's so many great musicians in Baton Rouge. And of course, you know, that also involves things in New Orleans and, you know, other parts of the state as well. So, right. so you know, I, I just want to kind of thank you and, uh, and, and uh, really give you that appreciation for the help you've given me to, to develop maybe one of my, of the places I've lived, I'm probably having the most musical fun here. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> that's good to hear. And what I'll tell you, when what I admired very early on when I first met you and just kind of either would see you personally or just hear about you, you know, in the, the area, is the your, your very proactive um, MO, if you will, of just being, being involved in the community. Because quite frankly, you know, I've noticed that in academia and, you know, different institutions, what have you, that sometimes the, uh, the music teachers in those environments don't necessarily reach out that much outside of that, yeah. you know, the, the castle, if you will. Right. Uh, but right, right off the bat, you hit the ground running. And yeah. you were playing with everybody, which is, and, and I, I think, and especially in a community, maybe, maybe it's the South, I don't know, but you've been, a, you've been to a lot of musical communities. I think if a musician sees someone who's, number one, skilled, but number two, just um, very willing to get involved, and number three, just personable, just a nice person, you, you're, you're generally welcomed with open arms. Yeah. Well, I think I have always been inspired by models, you know, of educator musicians who have, uh, have focused on that kind of community. Well, I guess two things. So I've been inspired by guys who have done those kind of things. So in, in my undergrad at Northern Illinois University, Ronald Carter was a saxophone player and a great teacher. He uh, directed uh, band in this on the south side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, I can't quite remember the name of that organization, but it was a weekly, you know, like a weekly uh, high school honor band type mm -hmm. situation. And he did a lot, of course, a lot of great recruitment for NIU from there. And in Rochester, I, I only had one opportunity to meet Fred Sturm, who was a great mm -hmm. arranger and teacher yeah. and musician. He wrote a great book. Yeah. yeah, and he taught at Eastman for a long time, and uh, somewhere along the line, well, Fred was involved in two things that I heard about somewhere along the line. One was that he directed an adult community band in Honeyoy Falls, New York, which is kind of a suburban part of the Rochester area, and you don't hear, you definitely don't hear about very many people teaching at an institute, institution, kind of the level of the conservatory, like the Eastman School, being willing to go out in the community and, and play with, you know, week and work with weekend warrior type, right, you know, right. musicians. And he also was involved in an adult, a camp 
for adult students, a jazz camp for adult students called the Tritone Camp, which Fred has since passed away, but um, the camp is still going. I actually just had a couple of uh, Zoom lessons today with uh, two guys who I met at, at that camp many years ago. But um, I think that that is, is, has always inspired me, you know. Uh, I was really involved a lot in community education in Rochester as well. But I guess I've always kind of, uh, I just enjoy being out there playing. And I really don't care <laughs> the level of musicians I'm playing with. When somebody calls, I like to do it. And I like, you know, maybe, maybe it's not always the highest level musical situation. Uh, maybe you're not going to be playing at Carnegie Hall anytime soon with a band. Mm -hmm. But... I like playing music. I like, there's just a physical thing about, you know, playing your horn and, yeah. and being on top of, uh, trying to be on top of your game as much as you can as a musician, and you've got to be playing to do that. And, uh, and I just like the hang. And I think our session over the last few days in New Orleans with all those great guys, maybe you might have put together the best, best saxophone section I've ever been a part of. <laughs> well, with me as the weak, weak link. No, like, no, no, there were no weak links. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, and if you were the weak link, why did I give you all the solos? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm blushing. Um, but just the hang of that. I mean, right. that, that, the, our, we had a little three-day session, and that will go down in the record books of some of my favorite hang, hanging oh, I'm ever. I'm glad. Yeah. And if you're not out there doing it, if you're not out in the community meeting people, you know, and of course that's a very high professional level situation, but I feel the same thing on any type of, of gig. And, you know, this being kind of a Baton Rouge-focused mm -hmm. thing, I mean, I have been really fortunate to play with some people who are very special to me in, here in Baton Rouge that maybe, uh, you know, they didn't have the opportunity to go to Eastman School, the Eastman sure, School. Maybe sure. they didn't even play their instrument their entire life and got into it later in life or took some years off, right. you know. But um, I, I, have, I, I tell those guys a lot of times that sometimes I have more fun listening to my students or my friends who are trying to get some things under their fingers, and you hear that growth. If I go listen to my favorite Joe Henderson record, I know what he's going to play. Mm -hmm. I got excited at one point listening to that, but maybe in a day, if I'm working with a student who plays... Who, who makes some progress as a musician, the excitement that I felt hearing their solo is a little bit more than hearing my Joe Henderson record. Right. Because you know them, you see the process, you're there to make that experience happen. Yeah, and you know? you're very vested in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talking about you know playing with different level musicians and maybe not even so much different level, but just a different pedigree musician where, like we played a job the other night where it was... You and I with, you know, you could say half the band were educated musicians and then the other half, they were they were also exactly. educated, but, but from a different, you know, a pedigree, a different yeah. ilk, and, but also, a, but wonderful musicians. Yeah. And I just love, I've always loved playing with musicians who um, have come at it from a different angle and you inevitably you end up learning something in those situations, you know. I probably play an equal number of swamp pop gigs mm -hmm. to jazz gigs, yeah. you know, in a given year. And which, you know, that's a style of music that you wouldn't even 
know what that meant. You're not going to study that at Eastman here. School of Music. Yeah. Right. And one of the bands I play with, I mean, there was a point where at least half of the guys worked in a plant. That was their full-time mm -hmm. job, you know. There's a guy who's a turtle farmer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when, when, when the piano player and singer, the turtle farmer guy, Lyndon, is playing Desperado, there's, there's so much emotion. I mean, he plays the same song every, every time we play a gig, but there's so much emotion and right. joy and beauty in that, you know. Um, and sometimes guys like that will even apologize. You know, oh, we're not like you. We don't have that kind of experience. <laughs> and I would rather many times hang with those guys, you know, because they play what they play with such a deep commitment. That's what they study. That's what they listen to. They're going to play those songs every weekend, but they're going to play them like it's the first time every weekend, and I love that. That's an interesting subject, too, because maybe sometimes you could argue that a musician like what you're talking about, maybe knowing more and being more educated would almost make it worse, it, or not worse, but it just it would take away the, the certain approach that they're taking to that music, and yeah. it, it would become, quote, too sophisticated or, or whatever. You know, it wouldn't be what it was. I, c I completely agree, and I think sometimes I think about the way that us as, you know, quote-unquote jazz musicians operate. Um, we forget the, the garage band mentality, and when you play in a garage band with your high school friends, you're going to learn that one song. You might play that one song for six months, you right. know, right. and you're going to know that in a different way than when we maybe just go into a session, read the stuff down. We, we, right. And we probably, we can, you can have the effect with the music if you've studied enough and if you've worked hard enough and you have a diverse background of styles that you can make it sound. I mean, we've both done plenty of sessions where you can make it sound like you've been playing it for years. Mm -hmm. But the feeling that you get when you have been playing it for years with the same people right is a completely different experience and i'm sure that listeners feel that i've been involved in several recording projects where you do a tour for a week before you do the recording and those recordings have a much different feel mm -hmm. than ones where you're like ah let me see if i can get the best musicians i know pay them a bunch of money and have them do this thing one time right you know right both are good both can be good mm -hmm. but where you have kind of the deeper connection is going to be that when you have that experience together. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, you know, when you, when you have those experience, I think, when you come back to, you know, the, the area that you're most comfortable with, let's say it's jazz in this case, it does bring something different when you come back to that music. Oh, of course. You know? And I always, quite frankly, on this subject, I, I've always loved listening to jazz musicians who, who bring those elements into their jazz. You know, the R&B guys who play jazz. You right. know, there's a, there's a different thing there, yeah. you know, that I love. Let's play another tune, man. Okay. How about um, All Things You Are? Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. Eleven thirteen or something crazy? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Put some train changes in there someplace, too. Thank you. 
<laughs> what just happened? <laughs> well, well we don't great. always get to play like that. Yeah, I'll you tell know? you what. Yeah. If you think. That's I love what it. It's going you know? through my mind, you know, because yeah. we're able to really just kind of hear each other and, you just know. respond. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and much of what we done we've done has not necessarily been in that context. I mean, we've done some background music together. We yeah. were in the produce aisle at Rouse's. <laughs> Boy, you, you know, bringing back fond memories <laughs> of uh, grocery store jazz. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've done it all, man, from Neil Young to Wayne Shorter. Well, heck, we were playing uh, Wild Thing with Jose Feliciano right. on Monday on the and, fly. Yeah, and here we are, sh sharp fives and minor nines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, he, had, he was playing some sharp 11s. Well, you know, well. I, he's, he, he's a, I know he's up in age now, but, I mean, just the, uh, I started doing my homework kind of after the fact. Yeah. I mean, of course, we know the tunes that he's famous for, but I mean, heck of a guitarist. Yeah. I mean, a wonderful guitarist. Yes, definitely. And I think nowadays he's, you know, he's dealing with some, you know, just the effects of age uh, with the hands and everything, but he still sounded wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was a great part yeah. of that event. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so um, what are you up to? Like, what's happening right now at, this, uh, um, at LSU? What's going on? Oh. What you doing? So. Uh, getting ready for the fall semester. Mm -hmm. This will be my second full year directing the jazz ensemble. And uh, that has been uh, a great experience, learning experience for me. I never, uh, of all the things that I've done in the education world, from teaching middle school general music to uh, <laughs> teaching at LSU, I, I think that uh, directing a, the top jazz ensemble at a major university like LSU is mm -hmm. probably something that would be the least uh, close, uh, the least on my radar. So it's been, a, it's been uh, fun and a learning experience to, you know, kind of begin to develop an uh, idea of how to approach doing a group like that. Mm -hmm. um, now, when so, you get to that level, um, what are some of the main things you're talking about? Is it con a lot of con conceptual things, still improvisational things, or uh, it, you know, the, I would I think that even thinking about that is one of the interesting challenges of mm -hmm. that. Um, I think that at every every institution I've been involved in, the 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 bands do different things are known for doing different things and probably need different uh different approaches i don't think that if you were you know if i had done this at other universities or if we moved some of my favorite uh, or well-known college jazz ensemble directors to different schools mm -hmm. that they would necessarily be able to do the exact same thing in the different places. Right. Um, so I think that there would be potentially opportunities to approach a band like that with an educational mindset. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think by that point, it's important to uh, provide what a real world experience in this music would require sure 
And uh, so I was, I've actually been thinking about kind of what are my main goals and objectives in the upcoming school year. And even thinking about what we did on our big band session last week, I mean, it's kind of interesting that we had that because that stuff has been on my mind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in that situation that we had, you have the best players that you can, that money can buy, mm -hmm. reading this music down and putting this stuff together. And that's what students need to be prepared for. Right. And so I really have been thinking in terms of goals and objectives this year as how can we polish music up to a level where it would be uh, something that you hear on a record and you're proud of. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we were trying to do over last week. You know, this, sure. what, what are the details of, you know, first of all, getting the notes and the rhythms mm -hmm. and then how are we going to articulate this? Where's our intonation going to sit? Right. Um, how do we, how do we, handle these rhythms as an ensemble you know there was one part in one of the charts we did where the brass had these quarter note triplets leading up to the saxes playing a downbeat yeah. and I noticed myself on the first couple of passes I didn't I wasn't aware of what was going on in the brass and once I heard those quarter note triplets I was like oh man we I we need to be responding to where that chord those quarter note triplets land that's where we need to land our right. note and I, I think that translating what, you, what we do, I have a hard time translating what I learn and know and think about when I'm playing in a section into the teaching context. Mm -hmm. So I have a former teacher, Ray Ricker, who mm. was saxophone teacher, clarinet teacher at the Eastman School for a long time, but at the last part of his career, he ran the, this uh, institute at Eastman called the, in the Institute for Music Leadership and the Arts Leadership Program. And Ray wrote a book called Lessons from a Streetwise Professor. Now, Ray was the main contractor in Rochester, New York. So if a Broadway musical came in or if anybody needed musicians for anything, they was, were going to Ray. Guy. So he's very experienced in the music business world. And in his book, which I use when I teach a, the preparing the artist class at, at LSU, he explains things that we just, we just do and know intuitively. Mm -hmm. But he explains them in a way that I would not think of how to put this down on paper. Not only does he do that with things that we know and do intuitively, there are things in there where you read what Ray has to say and you think, oh yeah, I should be doing that more. Or I could add that into my arsenal of the mm -hmm. way I interact with people. So could be something as simple as, you know, never discuss money on the session. <laughs> You know, <laughs> right. or never be standing around in a circle of musicians and say, hey, are you on that gig next week? Right. Just etiquette. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Anything. I need, I need to see this book. I'll yeah. Read it. yeah. Anything from that type of stuff to uh, maybe little details about applying for grants or, right. um, you know, budgeting or how contracts work, you know, mm -hmm. uh, negotiating 
And so there's things in there that I share with students. Here's the way I do it. Here's the way Ray does it. Um, you're going to have to figure out your own way to do this. Right. But, the, but Ray is able to put this in this book so that it's, it's so crystal clear. And um, I have also worked with, and you have too, with leaders and directors. I think of several directors I've worked with who they aren't even able to really relate things in musical terminology. Hmm. need to have a little more stank on that, you know? Oh, right, I need right. to be able to smell that line that you're playing, right, you know? Yeah. A little bit more hair on it, as some people <laughs> um, and And then, you know, guys like us, we, we have a way of translating that. Hmm. But if we're working with students and if we're going to give them what they need, I feel like... I am not in a position where I can just say, I need to smell your note, you know? Right, right. I I have to be able to express, here is exactly what I'm looking for, and here's the technique you use to do that. And um, I think that is a a real challenge. And so that's something, those kind of things, I think, are what we're trying to, what I want to help these students understand is... Uh, here's the details of the music. Here's how you're going to prepare this. St- when you're away from this, we'll rehearse these five charts for three months. Mm-hmm. When you're away from this, you're not getting three months. And I was very thankful on our session that we had Lee Lambert, who was an, an LSU graduate. I was about to bring him up just because uh, he was, pr- well, yeah, I think he was the youngest guy on the yeah. session. Probably, uh, I think I'm fair in saying, uh, one of the less experienced players in the session. But I, I was, you know, as the musical director, I'm always, um, I'm, you know, I'm checking out every, I'm trying to check out everything, just be yeah. sensitive to the scenario. And what I, one of the things I really dug about Lee, you know, in addition to his playing, was he really took that young musician approach of just very professional. And you could tell he was just taking it all in. You know, and he, of course, he was sitting next to a veteran, uh, our dear friend Bobby Campo, and a, a wonderful trumpet player. And um, and I could, I, I, when I'm talking to another section or just talking to the artist or something, I would look over and I would see Bobby kind of telling them little things here and there. And and that's the tradition to me. That's the, you know, because I think and that's the tough thing. I think sometimes is being an educator in music, especially music, is that especially jazz music is that it's such an aural, A-U-R-A-L, tradition that you can talk to the kids or the students about concepts and techniques and all that, and you have to. But you, you do reach a certain point where it's, okay, now you just got to go and process it. Listen, listen, listen. And that's what I kind of, I, I was checking out Lee, you know, he was doing that. And he was, he was, he was doing the gig. I mean, he did a wonderful job. But at the same time, he's taken in the information so that the next time he's going to be even more experienced. You know? It's, I don't, I, I don't know if you can teach that piece of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when you're in the student situation, it's not, when you, when you're, Colleagues in a band are your fellow students. It's not like sitting next to Bobby Campo. Mm-hmm. Um, 
man, two, two things, and then I'll get back to that. I've actually uh, been listening to a fairly old Tim, per- Tim Ferriss podcast where he's interviewing Jocko Willink. And Jocko is a, is a Navy SEAL leader and uh, kind of a military strategist, among other things. And Jocko uh, was talking about, well, they were both talking about training. H- how do you know when a guy's going to make it or not make it okay. in the Navy SEALs, you know? And they, they touched on some things where Jocko was talking about if, if you, you bring a guy in for a debrief after an exercise after some training and they and you say hey you might want to work on this or that and this or that and then they come in and they say well uh my guys weren't doing this and this guy messed this up and my gunner was shooting at the wrong people or whatever it was they they want to talk over top of your suggestions you know right right. this and those who have humility and say yep i'm going to work on it well Mm -hmm. i'll try better next time thanks for your comments those are the those are the guys that are going to go far, you know. Right. I'm going to bring this back. I'll bring it around. I promise. And then Lee was saying that he heard uh, Jeff Albert, one of the trombone players on the session, saying something to the effect of, if somebody would have told him when he was 17 years old that he would be sitting in a session like we did with the guys who were playing, uh, you know, in 20 years or whatever. Mm-hmm he would have said, no way, that's not even possible, or just been so scared to death that he would have <laughs> quit playing trombone, you know? And Lee was very sensitive to that idea. And, of course, I kept checking in on him. And uh, he said, I'm just trying to sit here, and we do not want to have to do another take because of the third trumpet ah, player, right, you know? Right, right. So he was wise enough to understand that. And I have seen, in the same breath here, I have seen people who have not been able to handle a Bobby Campo type suggestion. Mm-hmm. They want, with their 25 year old selves, right. they want to say, well, no, this is the way that I learned it in school. You know, right. uh, I, I don't think that is correct. Mm-hmm. And first of all, you're wrong if you're saying that, you know. And second of all, you have to, and also this goes with moving to different places, you have to understand the culture of the creative musical situation you're in. Hmm. And you have to know when it's going to be appropriate to have what kind of conversations. I actually, it's kind of an unrelated story, but um, my my. father-in-law we we my wife and I moved into a house in Roselle Illinois that my fa- my my her her parents had owned and we got to know some of their some of her parents friends who were kind of living in the same area mm-hmm. and one night we were hanging out at a birthday party or something like this and uh, there was a little politics talk going on sure. and I kind of engaged here and there with it and one of the guys one of one of uh, my wife's dad's buddies told me later, he's like, don't even, you should just never engage in a political conversation with old guys like that. Just stay <laughs> out. You're going you're gonna to step in it. There's no way to, right. to be safe, you know? And I think that's a great kind of a, you, you should operate in that way first. I'm going to keep my mouth shut first. Right. And maybe over time, I can develop a relationship 
where where it'll be appropriate for me to contribute. I'll give you one other Bobby Campo story mm-hmm. too. We've talked a lot in our drives back and forth from New Orleans just about working and being a musician. And we've talked about the difference between we've talked about the the approach of a working musician. And when you're like us, going, playing all different kinds of gigs with different people, you're going to have good nights. You're going to have bad nights. Sure. You're going to tell a joke at the right time that everybody's going to think is hilarious. And you're going to tell a stupid joke that nobody's going to laugh at. Mm-hmm. And you're going to step in it with the comment that you make. And you're going to say things that everybody agrees with. And that learning to deal with that right. is a huge part of being a working musician. And I want to do that. I like doing that. I also think that's what this type of playing is about. When we're improvising mm-hmm. and playing music together, like um, we have the f- first time we played together, I'm gonna, we're going to play differently than we do now after our five years of experience sure, together. Sure. Our conversations have developed. You know, I'm going to go someplace now because I know, oh, this is going to be so fun with Mike. Right. I might not go to the same place with somebody else, you know. Right. It's part of our understanding and our culture together. And it's fun to see a guy like Lee getting it. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes disheartening to see other folks maybe not getting it, but I learned from a friend of mine too in Chicago, Ryan Schultz, he said, never write anybody off. Oh, sure. You never know when somebody's going to come back from experience and be a completely different player and have developed and, and grown. Well, you know, along those lines, um, I totally agree with that. Never write anyone off because we both know someone, and, and I'll leave the name out, but, but you'll know who I'm talking about, who is a pianist that um, started with me on the high school level and I got this kid as a freshman and he was really a vocalist and kind of dabbling at piano and started working with him and got him you know kind of engaged in the piano and I was like yeah you know he's got some ability but you know this probably isn't going to go very far right. and and quite honestly there was some rhythmic issues I thought and but he just got it in his head I want to be a jazz pianist and sophomore year I see him getting a little better and he's one of these kids where I give him something and he just gobbles it up and next week he's just like waiting for more and then by his senior year he was so proactive and you know he would come up to me for example and say have you ever heard of this piano player in Los Angeles big time session player and it was a name I wasn't familiar with he says uh, I said no I haven't really heard okay yeah I'm gonna have a Skype lesson with him next week and I'm like how did you arrange this you know but he he was just fearless and determined, and then he went to LSU and did his four years there and studying with wonderful musicians like yourself. And now he's one of the most working piano players in New Orleans, and deservedly so. And he sounds wonderful. Yeah. You know, but he's one that, I hate to say, it's like, yeah, I don't really see this happening, you know, and he he proved me wrong. Right. And he's one of my favorite students. Yeah. Yeah. And he's another person who has learned how to operate within the cultural context of a scene Mm -hmm. and that makes you successful and on top of all this if we think about you know we're here at the arts council we're thinking about arts and community arts and stuff that's what this is 
that's what's available to us in an arts community in a place. You know, we are fortunate wherever I've lived and in this area where we can just do these things, have these conversations and play music like this. And such a big part of that is taking that initiative to make it happen for Mm -hmm. yourself. I want to learn this. I want to learn how to do this. Like one of the bands I was talking about earlier where, you know, these guys have not studied this their entire life, but I played with the Florida Street Blowhards during the entire pandemic time. When everything was shut down, Sam Irwin would book these front yard concerts, and we would go out and play. I mean, there would be two or three a week, mm-hmm. and he had that dr- same kind of drive. I'm going to make this happen. I want my band to be playing. I want to stay active. Right. And I got to be, I, I had, you know, was, was a fortunate recipient of, of that work that he did. And I was able to play music. Yep. I, I didn't, I, there, I didn't skip a beat, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let's play some more beats. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> you had mentioned a tune that uh, I've always loved to play by Fats Waller. Yeah. The, the amazing Fats Waller. He's one that just, when I, you know, I'm, I was a, I got my undergrad in, in history. I love history. And when I study him, he just continuously knocks me out because he's one of these guys who would clown around. You look at him and you think, number one, most of the videos you see, a lot of times you don't see his hands. He's just clowning, his face is smiling. But he's playing this ridiculous stride yeah. piano. Yeah. And in my book, just one of the <laughs> finest musicians ever. But stride piano, forget about yeah, it. Yeah, right. So this is a tune by him called Jitterbug Waltz. Yeah. Let me set it up or? Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. 
fun, man. I didn't want that to end. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, we haven't really talked much about um, just, you know, your, we've talked a lot about education and um, the, you going through school and learning to play this music, but I mean, you've been out active as a professional. Um, you've done recordings. Uh, you've toured. Um, you were with the Manor Ferguson band, weren't you? Yeah, I did for a little while. That must have been an experience. Oh, it was great, yeah. Um, I uh, knew and had, had done a camp with Tom Garling, who had been the music director for the Maynard Band for a long time. And he was telling stories one night at the bar in Wisconsin <laughs> at this camp. <laughs> and Maynard Road stories, you know. And I said, oh, man, that would be so great to have that kind of an opportunity. And he said, Really? Okay, well, give me a tape. I'll send it to Ed Sargent, who was the tour manager. And uh, so I think it took about a year for there to be an opening, and then mm-hmm. uh, and then that happened. And it was just it was so musically rewarding. Um, and like I said, I did a, a couple of tours uh, in 2004 and 2005, and uh, then. That was kind of enough of the road for me. I mm-hmm. ended up back in Chicago with my wife. My wife and I got married in 2005. And, uh, but, you know, th- that experience, talking about culture and meeting people and hanging with people and figuring out how to make stuff work, that's a, that's a whole other world, you know, mm-hmm. being on the road with a band and sure. the, the daily grind. And... I remember there was a there was a Wenton Marsalis kind of coffee table size book that I had, Sweet Swing Blues on the Road, I think it was maybe called, and I, I kind of had it when I was in high school and stuff, and uh, a lot of cool pictures of the Lincoln Center Orchestra and that, and cool stories, and he said somewhere in there, there was a little, you know, couple of paragraphs of, oh, having a rough day, or blah, 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 but then you know it's going to be good because you have a gig that night, mm-hmm. and that was definitely... You know, in that in that experience, no matter what the travel situation might be like, it was just so great to play music and to play music with Maynard Ferguson, who's a legend. You know, sure. one of the direct kind of progenitors. You know, was there with the guys. You know, sure. hanging out with Miles Davis and Dizzy mm-hmm. Gillespie. And uh, I actually was reading a book at the time. It was a Sonny Rollins biography. And it talked about a, a tour that had the Sonny Rollins trio and the Maynard Ferguson band and maybe other couple bands, you know. And uh, I think I'd have to go back and double check this, so don't quote me if I'm wrong, folks. But uh, uh, maybe Frankie Dunlop was playing drums with Sonny Rollins at the mm-hmm. time, and he had always wanted to be on the Maynard band, and an opportunity came up, and so Frankie left to go uh-huh. with Maynard. <laughs> but I asked, I got to ask Maynard about that. Oh, you really? know, that tour, yeah, you know, yeah. and he told me, you know, I can't remember the stories now. I'm sure they were really, you know, great, maybe not even appropriate for a podcast mm, anyway. Right, but, right, right. Uh, you know, he told me some stories about that exact tour. How cool was that to feel like, man, talking about history? I mean, here I am a part of that yeah. history. Yeah. So it was great and met some great musicians um, there. And. Yeah, so so I had a great experience there, and there was a lot of great bands while I was in Chicago who mm-hmm. I played and traveled with as well. So many great musicians there, and and then you know my kind of my my thinking when I went to the Eastman School was that I would 
you know, focus probably more on teaching, maybe even at the elementary or middle school mm-hmm. or high school level. And then coming here and, and uh, you know, being that LSU is so, uh, it's a research school, you know, it's, yeah. it's a division one research school and you really have 40, 40% of your job is to be out there doing what you do. Mm-hmm. And so I have been able to of late, um, you know, do some really cool projects through little travel money or whatever's available through LSU. But then, uh, you know, as I've worked through the process and trying to get to the point where I got my next promotion, like I mentioned, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I've made sure to kind of do my best to keep some national and international things going. We'll we'll mention the name of some of those projects. So um, there's a really cool quartet that uh, we kind of got together because I was doing a podcast for a while. Mm -hmm. And one of the guests I had was a tenor saxophone player named Donnie Norton, who teaches in Portland. We were at school together in Illinois. And a couple of our other friends who we had met separately in different parts of our lives, Mm -hmm. uh, both texted us and said, hey, I heard the podcast. And one was Bron Kahn, who's a great bass player who teaches at Utah State University in Logan. And another one was Brian Claxton, who's a great drummer who teaches at University of Northern Colorado in Greeley and also at uh, University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. And we just jokingly said, hey, let's make a band, you know. And then we did. (laughs) And so so we have uh, the group's called Facing West, and we have a record out. We have another one in the hopper that we we need to kind of get going on and, and put out here at some point. But that group's called Facing West with those guys, and it's two tenors, bass, and drums. Sorry, Mike, we didn't. We, we'll bring you along next time. <laughs> well, I can I can use it as a play along when I'm when I'm at home. I can. There's room for the piano play along. There you go. Perfect. Good. I'm glad it'll work for you. Um, so kind of like in the in the Elvin Jones live at the lighthouse kind of vibe. Right. There. Right. And uh, then I I uh, I did a little trip to Columbia. I did a little recording there with a great piano player, Sam Farley. Uh, but my most uh, kind of uh, long-range international project or the, the, something that I've done that's kind of had the most legs has been uh, a quartet project that I, I did with a piano player friend of mine, Marcelo Pinto. And um, last year, maybe in October, no, maybe it was, oh, I think it was two years ago. Wow, time flies. <laughs> two years ago or so, um, Marcelo came here and brought a great drummer from um, from Brazil, Andre Limoa Quarez, and uh, Quinn Sternberg from New Orleans, great bass player from yeah. New Orleans. We got together, we recorded about five, six, or four of Marcelo's tunes, uh, tuned by Quinn, the bass player, and then I wrote this uh, suite for my family. I've got four kids, mm-hmm. so I wrote a six-movement suite for that quartet and we recorded at chris butcher's place in new orleans and then last august we uh we couldn't bring quinn with us didn't have the funding for that but Mm -hmm. we went to brazil uh me and then and we put uh we got grabbed a bass player there from bella resoch and uh and we played with that band same music at the savasi jazz festival there and that was really fun By the way, the record is called Shifting Perspectives. Okay. So these are, you know, available on streaming services. Facing West record is just called Facing West. And this Marcelo Pinto, Doug Stone, uh, Shifting Perspectives. Mm-hmm. Facing West is on Outside In Music, great label, uh, run by a friend of mine, Nick Finzer. 
and Shifting Perspectives is on Ears and Eyes record records, uh, which Matthew Golombiski, another friend of mine, runs. And uh, and Marcelo really loves coming to the U.S. And the plane mm-hmm. tickets to Brazil are very expensive right now. So oh, <laughs> Marcelo's okay. coming back in October. Yeah. And uh, we're, we have another little project here in the works. And so that's been really, really some fun stuff that I've, you know, I've gotten out of my comfort zone mm-hmm. a little bit and and made some things happen here. And uh, so, yeah, I'm very thankful to uh, to be a part of all of those projects. And, uh, you know, I always love playing with you, Mike. We've had a couple of great gigs at the oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. at Quorum Hall. Oh, and I should mention that with that Shifting Perspective band, we actually played a concert right here in this room uh, for uh, as a part here of the arts project mm-hmm. here at the Arts Council. Yeah. yeah so. Well, and um, so everybody, our listeners can also find all this information, I'm sure, at your website, right? Yeah, yeah, DougStoneJazz.com. I think it's mostly there. Say it one more time. DougStoneJazz.com. DougStoneJazz.com. Well, look, Doug, it's been an absolute pleasure, as it always is. Uh, The hang, the music. and inevitably, I always learn something hanging with you, so I appreciate that. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you so much, man. man. It's great. Well, let's, let's play our listeners out. Okay. Let's do one. You had mentioned a tune, um, Remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I don't really know, but I'm going to get through it. <laughs> You'll remember it. I'll try to like remember. Remember. <laughs> it's in the nice cozy key of A flat. There we go. You know, I can tell one joke here. You know, go if, ahead. If, the, if, if the tune If the tune is in... Uh, uh, D flat, you know where that puts the alto saxophone? Because I've heard this, I'm going to guess. Uh, the case? Back in the case. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stick with four flats, though, so we'll be okay. All right. You count it. One, two, I
Yo, bro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was fun, though. <laughs> I wanted you to go. The Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge would like to acknowledge our generous sponsors, the Shell Corporation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Louisiana Office of Cultural Development, and the City of Baton Rouge.